Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Catherine Van Sickle, the stories-based podcast that interviews professionals, donors, and thought leaders in the field of fundraising. Today's episode must start with a disclaimer. This conversation was recorded pre-COVID, and I have waited to share it because it didn't feel as relevant when we were all scrambling to transition to remote work several weeks ago. As I listen and remember our talk, I realize it's more relevant than ever. We start with an unscripted conversation about financial aid and the historic $1.8 billion gift from Michael Bloomberg. Then, we talk about leadership, something we all desperately need right now. Leadership on all levels is hard to display in times of uncertainty, and Fritz's remarks inspire a new burst of energy. Fritz and I met in 2013, and I will never forget the openness and graciousness he gave to me and my friend Abby Smitka. I'm grateful our conversation continues today. Fritz Schrader became Vice President for Development and Alumni Relations in October 2012 and has served Johns Hopkins for more than 23 years in a series of senior management roles. He provides leadership and oversight for all fundraising and alumni efforts of the university and Johns Hopkins Medicine. Fritz joined Johns Hopkins from the University of Maryland at College Park, where he had served since 1989 in a number of roles He's a frequent speaker and conference leader, serves as a trustee of CASE. In addition, he's currently leading an effort to develop a more consistent advancement curriculum through the work of a task force established by CASE in the fall of 2017. Fritz is a 1989 graduate of James Madison University. He earned a Master's of Business Administration from the University of Maryland at College Park in 1994. If you needed a pick-me-up for why our work matters, keep listening. Hi, Fritz. How are you today? I'm great, Catherine. It's good to be here. Yes, thank you for joining us on The Debrief. I've listened to enough of these to get a a sense of what it's like, and I am excited to be a part of it. So thank you for the invitation. Yeah, I mentioned in my episode with my dad that you were one of the first people I wanted to have on. Um, I just remember very clearly being with you at Case and really seeing you as a leader in the field. So we have a lot to talk about today. You've been at Hopkins since 1996. To put it as simple as possible, why have you stayed? It's a great question. So for me, as I think about this, it's a blend of a couple related pieces. First of all, personal values and personal commitment. And what I would describe as this sense of loyalty and this sense of commitment to institutions. And a lot of that is influenced by the fact that my dad was for his entire career at the University of North Carolina. And he was there for 38 years, and he was the dean of students for probably 25 of those 38. So I think I come from a background that exhibits that kind of deep commitment. But that's just one part of it. I think the other parts of it are, number one, I have had the benefit over those 24, 25 years of working for some outstanding people who invested in me, who inspired me, and who took the time to help me grow. That includes the current president, Ron Daniels, but Mike Eicher and Bob Lindgren before that, and lots of folks, Charlie Flager. And so it's this perfect combination of institution, people that I worked for, and then honestly, just opportunity, the chance to move up within an organization when often you would need to look outside of an organization for that next growth opportunity, and I was just really lucky to have those moments here. Well, a challenge of the field certainly is 
movement, people moving around and not staying. And that is a fine balance for people of figuring out when do I make the next move and why. From the perspective of what you just talked about of staying and, and really having people invest in you, you investing in them, what power does that give to, to officers to stay? I hear it all the time and it's something I even struggle with. So let me start by saying the depth of relationship that I have with our key constituency, our donors, our alumni, our trustees, is one of the big assets that I get to enjoy. And it's over that 20 plus year period of building those relationships. You must have seen huge growth in the prospects that you started working with 20 years ago. Can you think of a few examples of cases where someone was like giving $50 and has then made seven or eight figure commitments? Yeah, no, absolutely. I can think of two in particular. So our immediate past chair of the board of trustees, a guy named Jeff Aronson, who is class of 80 roughly. And when I first got to know him, he was a regional volunteer on our New York committee for the last campaign, not even the one we just concluded, but the one prior to that. I have told him the story. I can remember he was turning 40, I think, and we were having a New York board meeting prior to our regional event. And he said, I got to leave at seven. I have tickets to see the Rolling Stones at Madison Square Garden. And I remember thinking, this guy's awesome. I mean, this is, this is so much fun. Fast forward, he became the chair of the board and his giving and his engagement and his philanthropy has grown over that same period of time. And I've, I've been there with each of the steps along the way. I think of another couple, uh, Susan and Matt Daimler. Susan is one of our trustees. She and Matt met at Hopkins uh, as undergrads. They founded companies early on after they finished at Hopkins and now are seven-figure donors um, together. And I've known them throughout that entire journey. So yeah, to your point. Do you think that's something that would have happened on its own? Like this philanthropy was already a value of theirs? Or do you think really being strategic and working with them and pushing them made that happen over time? I tend to think that philanthropy is the product in a simple way, is the product of really three important elements. The first element is a, an individual value, a donor, an alumnus, a trustee who has an individual sense of their philanthropic responsibility in the world, regardless of what their capacity is. But this is hardwired, I believe, in giving back. The second thing, that comes into play is their affection or affinity towards an institution. And then the third thing that comes into play is the idea and the, the moment in time when you're presenting something as a concept. And the reason I lay it out that way is it's really hard to influence someone's personal values. We, you know, we do a lot with our students to try and raise awareness, but you're either in that zone or you're not. We absolutely can influence people's affinity to this institution by trying to create experiences and immersive things that increases their connection to the institution, to Hopkins. It's the third piece that I think is really the influential piece that we work on, which is how do you create compelling ideas that connect with an individual that help them grow and sometimes press them harder than they thought they were going to be pressed in thinking about their gift. That's not the, the classic response of, you know, capacity and inclination. Right, right. It's a twist on that. It's, my, it's the way I think about it. Because capacity and inclination just feels too clinical. Well, so I think another example, which you didn't raise, of someone who's been involved for a long time is Mike Bloomberg. You have closed a historic gift in our field, uh, $1.8 billion. 
tell us about it. I am dying to hear. Yeah, yeah. Any answer that I give about the Bloomberg relationship and the role that anyone plays in that has to start with a couple important pieces. Mike Bloomberg's relationship to this institution is decades strong. He is class of 64. He, as I'm sure everybody has read, made his very first gift to this institution the year after he graduated, and it was $5. We and actually, he was undergrad? He went to the... He, he was School of Engineering, Whiting School of Engineering undergrad. Okay. Um, we actually have the gift card from 1965 when he oh made Oh my that. gosh. Long before databases, when things were done in shoeboxes, we have the gift card, and we wow. talk about that a lot. His relationship with this institution as a donor started back then. It has followed through a series of presidential leaders, as well as vice presidential leaders, people who are in my role, from Rip Haley to Bob Lindgren to Mike Iker, all of whom strengthened his connection to the institution. And so it's important to say, I think the, the moment that was a year and a half ago with the $1.8 billion for financial aid was the culmination of decades of engagement and thoughtful work on behalf of an institution stewardship and alumni programming and all the things that just happened to line up in that moment. Then it's this bolt of lightning, which is Mike Bloomberg, who, you know, I think is one of the world's greatest philanthropists and has incredible capacity just in terms of his own financial wherewithal and who believes deeply and loves this institution. So that lightning bolt was a part of it. But the piece that I think you're probably most interested in is the idea. And, and so back to my three parts, the mm -hmm. third part was working with him and his entire team at the Bloomberg Philanthropies to create an idea around student access and affordability of higher education that was built together. Um, there was a, a lot of iteration back and forth on what this idea would be that would compel him to invest this much in the institution. And so that's the part where when I think about what did I do, what did we do, it was that building of the idea and the partnership and the evolution of the idea that finally got presented. And, and there was a moment that fall where he called the president and said, okay, I'm going to do this. All those moments that you, know, you think about when you think about fundraising, you think about major gift work and what have you, they actually happened in, in about a two-year period of time. But including wow. a, Sunday night, a Sunday night phone call when the president calls me at home and says, I just got a call from Mike. He's going to do this. And the, there were other languages you can imagine in it, but it was a pretty fantastic. <laughs> so take us back. How long have you been managing the relationship? And do you remember your first meeting with him? I do. So, um, <laughs> so I've been in the vice president's role since 2012, going on you know, eight plus years, going on almost nine years where I've been primarily responsible for that relationship. I actually met Mike the very first time. Um, when I started at Hopkins, I was the director of annual giving. And in the spring of 1999, Mike was chair of the board, and I was making a presentation to the board on alumni participation of all things. My boss at the time was Bob Lindgren, the vice president, and I, I remember it like it was yesterday, at Sh in Schreiber Hall, where our boardroom was, standing in front of the coffee table, and Bob said, Fritz, let me introduce you to Mike Bloomberg. And so I turned, and, and so we had that conversation, and uh, he said, continue to do good work. From that point, you know, I probably spent a couple times a year meeting with him or seeing him at various events, but I really didn't build the strength of the relationship that I think exists now until landing in this role. 
Mm -hmm. so starting in 2012. And if you look back over his history, the, the Bloomberg Distinguished Professor gift, which was the 250 million, was back in 2012. And then around 2015, he made a $300 million gift to the Bloomberg School of Public Health. So there were part of what I think about when I think about our role is the trust that gets built in creating ideas, partnering with his organization, with him, and delivering on it. Every success leads you to the next opportunity. Yeah, I think too, the staying power of not just closing the first major gift, but the second, and then maybe the first principal gift is, sounds to me like incredibly rewarding. Yep, it absolutely is. And look, Mike is, Mike is that example in yeah. hyperdrive, but it's, yeah. the same, it's the same core principles. Mike's first million dollar gift to Hopkins happened in the late 1980s. Wow. So in a Forbes article, when the gift was announced, Bloomberg said, no qualified high school student should ever be barred entrance to a college based on his or her family's bank account. I know all of us feel that way, and it's a huge value of higher ed and the work that we do. But how does this gift impact your financial aid packages and your ability to, to be need blind? What's the biggest thing that it's really doing? Yep. So great question. The need blind is something that we had presented ourselves to be, but never had the permanent funding to declare it permanently. In other words, okay. we, would, we would approach each admission cycle saying we can be need blind this admission cycle, but we never had the security to say, and we are forevermore need blind as an institution. So the first thing is this gift gave us that financial underpinning to be able to say from this point forward, Johns Hopkins is need blind in its admissions. I think the second thing that it did is it strengthened packages across the economic spectrum for all students who have need. And it allowed us to go deeper with each package, put more money into each package. The third thing, and actually one of the most important things from my perspective is it removed loans from the financial aid packages that we awarded to students. So prior to this gift, if you were enrolling at Hopkins and any one of our peers, you would identify yourself as needing financial aid and we would respond with, here's your total package and a portion of it is grant and a portion of it is your own loan that you take out, federally subsidized. We've now removed loans from the packages that we're putting together. And that yeah. is, that's huge. That is absolutely huge. But the final thing that actually doesn't get talked about a lot is the gift in part also allowed us to strengthen the services to help us identify the underserved student populations that aren't either aware of Hopkins as an opportunity for themselves or who, if they get admitted to Hopkins, can't imagine how to make the jump from their own community into Hopkins. And then even while they're here, students who haven't had the same patterning of learning and mentoring and support that more privileged students might have had, we've been able to build these wraparound services to ensure that students who now come to Hopkins from disadvantaged backgrounds financially aren't simply thrown in without the support services that help them thrive in this environment. There's so much out there about that. I know there was an article, you know, in the last year about 
you know, getting in is just the first step. And then once you're there, how hard it is. And a lot of students can get discouraged early on. So this is amazing to hear. Um, yeah. How are you getting the word out? Because you say it's not talked about much. Yeah, so we, rather than sort of talking about it in the popular media, the way we're getting the word out is when our admissions team and our admissions staff are out around the country and around the world, they are talking about this. They're talking about that differentiating characteristic of we're here in less well-served communities on the sort of the standard recruiting uh, roadshow. And, and if you come to Hopkins, there is a whole set of experiences that will enable you to take advantage of everything Hopkins has to offer. Do you think you'll ever be able to be tuition free? You know, it's interesting. No is the short answer. <laughs> but I actually, Mike has said publicly in other venues that he believes that people who can afford to pay full price should afford to pay full price. And so the idea that Tuition-free makes sense to someone who might be making $60,000 or less. Someone who's making $2 million shouldn't be able to take advantage of a tuition-free program at Hopkins. And so I think the idea of tuition-free doesn't apply across the entire spectrum the way, um, and, and certainly I've heard Mike reinforce that concept. Yeah, that makes me think we just saw USC is now giving aid to families that make less than 80000 I think. Right, 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 so. exactly. Do you think this is something that we'll be seeing more in the field in the coming years? I do think both at the undergraduate and graduate level, you look just where you are in New York between Columbia and NYU and Cornell, thinking about how they look at the School of Medicine and mm -hmm. debt for our MD graduates and all of the efforts to think about either debt-free or tuition-free at the School of Medicine level. I think you're going to see an awareness of the cost of higher education and the pressures of that cost play out in more generous, more uh, aggressive financial aid strategies. So we've talked a bit about your role as a VP. And when I was thinking about our conversation, I was thinking, you know, just because you're a vice president at a top school does not mean that you are a leader. They're not necessarily one and the same. So I would now like to have a more explicit conversation about leadership and how you have grown your own leadership and the leadership of others in your career. You started a program called Leadership in Action. With other people, but yes, I was there at its inception, yes. We actually talk about Leadership in Action a lot at Columbia because my boss, Vero Martini, attended it, yeah. and my team members, Jane Lowry, attended it. And I have to tell you, they refer to it often. It really helped them. So tell us how you started it with others and who was involved and what it took to get it off the ground. Yep. I love hearing your colleagues at Columbia refer to it. That's, uh, that's important. Look, the, Mike Eicher, who was my immediate predecessor here, and I've already referred to him once, um, he really, I think, started the ball rolling. Mike wrote a paper that was never published, but it was a paper that he'd been working on on leadership. And it's something, I was his senior AVP when he was the vice president, and something he and I had talked about a lot over the time that we worked together, the importance of leadership development, his commitment, and then my commitment to growing leaders. We also then had a very strong partnership with Martin Schell and John Denny at Stanford. And the four of us took what was Mike's original paper, and then John and I, with our talent management teams, spent the better part of a year and a half building out what could this be if we put leaders from two institutions in a room and build a curriculum around leadership development and training, but immersed it in higher education advancement and higher education fundraising. 
What I mean by that is if you looked at each of the modules, they're very familiar modules. You could go to any leadership development program off the shelf and see decision-making and emotional intelligence and all the elements. But immersing it inside the context of higher education advancement felt unique. So year and a half of building, and we launched it with an inaugural cohort of six from Hopkins and six from Stanford. And we did that sort of two or three years, and then we added Columbia, and we added Cornell, and we've added Duke. So there are five institutions now. Um, and we and are- And when in, was this? When was the first year? So the first year was probably 2010, 2011. Okay. So we're coming okay. up, we've taken a couple gap years along the way when we needed a break to refresh, but it's been running 10 years now. And we uh, are just about to launch the next cohort at the end of March. So in another 30 days, We'll have the next cohort stood up and uh, five institutions are each putting in four participants and it'll begin in March and it'll run through next February. And does the upcoming cohort look the way you imagined it would a decade in? It really does, Catherine. And it's, it's incredibly gratifying and incredibly exciting to me. And part of it is I am very susceptible to leadership training and to leadership learning. Uh, I think back to an MBA course that I took on leadership with a guy named Hank Sims in the business school at Maryland. And it really sparked something in me to try and figure out, as you said at the very beginning, getting a title is not leadership. Getting a title is just a chair you sit in. What you do with that chair and that role is really about leadership. And it's, it's something I've spent a lot of time on through courses at the Center for Creative Leadership and a Harvard Exec Ed program, trying to understand what are those things that truly differentiate terrific leaders and I wouldn't pretend to be one but I spent a lot of time thinking about it. And, and what is it about it that that excites you so much? I use this analogy a lot. It's like exercising. The leadership muscle is something that atrophies if you don't constantly work at it. And I've so, never heard it referred to as a muscle. How interesting. It, thank you. I, I, I think of it very much as a muscle. It's something that if you really don't focus and spend time working at it constantly that you'll forget that it's an important part of what you do. And what I mean by that is I got stuff that occupies every minute of every day. But if I don't make space to think about the fact that one of my responsibilities is a big organization of people who are looking for a lot of things, but one of the things they're looking for is strong leadership and a common sense of vision and commitment to values. And if I, if, if I lose sight of that, I've lost something fundamental to being in this role. Whether or not you will accept this, I, I'm going to say you have made a huge impact on the industry around this, around building talent and leadership. LIA is one piece, and we'll talk about the others. How do you think about preparing leaders in our field from the different perspectives that you have? You know, you have the perspective as a teacher in you know teaching at Case, a program director with LIA, and then as a vice president. What propels the way you think about it? Yeah. It's, it's, so I think about this a lot, and I think about this even looking back on the great vice presidents that I've worked for, what did they teach to me, mm. and then how do I turn and look at the leaders in our organization and help them grow, and what is my responsibility in helping them grow, and, and you described it applied across, whether it's you know, case teaching or LIA. One of the things that I start every LIA session with is a statement to the group that says basically of all the things that you're going to learn, the one that I am most passionate about is self-awareness. Because I think actually one of the fatal 
stumbles that leaders make is when they do not understand their impact on others and when they aren't in touch with how people respond emotionally, strategically to their style, to their language, to their personality. And it's not meant to be there's a perfect leader personality. It's meant to say instead, invest in understanding who you are. And, and you do that through a lot of self-assessments and 360s and things like that. But understand who you are and how you impact other people and then let that be an important tool for you in developing your own leadership style so we met at case the dartmouth summer institute and you've been involved with case for a long time and you're a trustee you've told us a little bit already but why have you made that a priority it's on top of your work it's additional travel why do it yeah, it's, so it's a couple of things. It's uh, no surprise. So I went to James Madison undergrad and then went to Maryland for business school. When I was a senior at JMU, I was a student assistant in the Phonathon program. And I became a student delegate to the Case District 3 conference at Opryland Hotel in Nashville, Tennessee. And I had this moment as a senior of being introduced to a lot of people in this field and thinking, wow. This is an amazing field of people who are open and engaging and, and encouraging of me pursuing it. And so that, that moment left an impact on me. And then I went to Dartmouth as an attendee in the summer of 1990. And that had a huge impact on me because I met some people that I still have friendships with, you know, just like you describe ours. Yeah. Um, and so I look at those early formative moments and think, Part of my responsibility is returning some of those early moments back to the profession. That's one piece of it. I think the other more serious piece of it is, I think we are at an inflection moment as a profession. The importance of philanthropy and engagement has grown dramatically in our, the lives of our institutions over the last 20 or 30 years. We're in a moment where the scrutiny, and in some cases the negative scrutiny around philanthropy, big gift involvement, Donor like reputational reputation. issues? Exactly, exactly. Donor reputation and risk. All of those things are coming together. The reason I'm on the case board right now, among others, is this deep sense of we need to ensure that the structure and the professionalism of our industry is at its utmost, is, is being taken care of in a way that is new and responsive to where we are today. And for me, that's a lot, a lot about it. How are we training this profession? What credentials should we have as a profession? What standards do we have as a profession? I often think, you know, I work in an open office at Columbia and I see my coworkers more than I see anybody else, more than I see my family, my friends. And so I think the people you work with know you really well. And I spoke with Kelly Earhart, um, your executive specialist prior to this interview as we were setting everything up and she was so enthusiastic about making it happen. And, and I asked her to just, t you know, tell me some things about you. And she said that you make her job pretty hard um, with your ability to say no. Uh, she said, this really makes my job difficult at times, but it's worth it. Regardless of level of staff, if someone asks him to grab coffee, attend a meeting, hop on a call, he always says yes without an ounce of hesitation. I have benefited from that um, when I asked you to have lunch at Case and you said yes. And you know, we've continued to stay in touch. And I think a lot of people are really grateful that, that that's a value of yours. 
but I'd love to hear from you why it's a priority and sort of what's in it for you. Yeah. No, it's great. Uh, uh, and Kelly's amazing. So I'm, it's actually kind of nice to hear that response coming from her because we laugh about this. It, yeah. Like all, all things, it's a product of a, of a lot of different pieces. A lot of people early on said yes to me. That mattered. It got me into this field. And I remember my senior year at JMU, I wrote letters to eight vice presidents up and down the East Coast. And I said, I'm going to be in your city, which was a complete lie because I wasn't going to their city, but I'm going to be in your city in three weeks. Can I come by and meet you? Because I want to understand what you do. And I drove from Charleston to Philadelphia meeting vice presidents to try and figure out, is this something I could do? And every single one of them said yes when I wrote to them. Uh, and this that was, was your first attempt at getting a prospect visit. It was. It, and it was before email. You know, I was doing this on, you know, the phone in my, my dorm room and all that kind of stuff. Oh, my gosh. So those early yeses mattered. And, and I have you know, story after story of people who have agreed to do things to help. And I tell staff when they're starting new roles, I think one of the most important things you can do when you land a new, in a new role is to visit your peers at other institutions to understand what people are doing elsewhere. And I've had a lot of people say yes for that. So some of it is that. Some of it is self-serving, which is when I look at the pace and the travel and the work, I could go days and weeks without seeing people on the development and alumni relations staff at Hopkins. And so anytime anybody says, could we grab, I just started this morning with a breakfast with someone who said, can I grab breakfast with you? And part of what it helps me do is to hear what's happening in the division. What do people need? What are they frustrated by? What are they excited by? And it keeps me in touch. I also think it's even more fundamental than that, which is part of what you and I do in this field is we get people to yes. And we work really hard to get an institutional idea and a donor or a volunteer and an advisory board to come to yes. So my instinct is always going to be yes. That said, and I, I said this to Kelly, there are a lot of times when I say no. It's just not often when someone says, can I take five minutes? Could you hop on the phone? Could we talk about this? Because I just think that's too important. I think the perspective from people in more junior roles is, I don't want to take your time or this can't possibly be important. And so it's interesting to hear you say that it's actually self-serving. Yeah. Um, because that's not, I don't think that's the instinct of, you know, those of us who are earlier in their careers. I think Amelia at Columbia would say the same thing. I think mm -hmm. so many things get filtered up to us in terms of information that it's important that we hear and we hear directly. And, you know, I would say, let us be the judge as to whether or not it's a good use of our time. I'll, I'll tell you. Let you say no. Let us say no. And let us say, you know what, that's actually something that would be handled better at this part of the organization than me. Uh, but let us judge that, not you. That's great. Well, this has been so much fun, Fritz. I would love to end with my signature question. What do you know for sure? All right, Catherine. So uh, this has been a great time. This question has intimidated me <laughs> since I listened to your first podcast about a month and a half ago. <laughs> and I have really been thinking about this because it feels so existential and so simple at the same time. So here's what I know for sure. I love what I do. And I say that not because it sounds simple and silly, but because it matters to me every single day. And I have lots of friends, and I know lots of people who don't love what they do, but who are in it because they've reached a certain point financially where they have to keep doing it, or 
because they can't imagine how to do something else. And I think about their professional lives and their work, and I contrast it with mine. And do I have bad days? Of course I have bad days. Do I have bad hours? Of course I do. But fundamentally, I love what I do, and I feel incredibly privileged to have landed in a role where I can say that without hesitation. And that's what I know for sure. Thank you, Fritz. Thank you, Catherine.